I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. Today I'm talking with the artist Susan York, whose work with graphite and drawing and sculpture can be found in collections such as the Brooklyn Museum, the Bronx Museum of Art, and the Lanning Foundation. Susan's in New York for the opening of her new show at the Drawing Center entitled Foundation. I'm so happy she had the time to come talk with me. So here is my conversation with Susan York. So what was it about Santa Fe? I thought about that. Oh, I had a boyfriend up there who's now my <laughs> husband. <laughs> I think that was the main draw. But now what I like about it is is that it's um, there's a community there and it's relatively small. Mm-hmm. And then there's an, a greater arts community, not completely unlike Marfa, where, that come in for biennials at Site Santa Fe and also have second homes there. Mm-hmm. So it enlarges the... The, the community in, in an interesting way for me. What was what was New York on your on your I always wanted to come to New York, but my husband feels that Santa Fe is too big and I like my <laughs> husband. <laughs> so so I come a lot, as you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'll stay for quite a while. Mm-hmm. But at this point that's probably the most realistic thing. And actually now I kind of like the balance between the two. I get a lot of work done in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And then when I come here I'll often sublease the studio and work. But it's not quite the same absorption because there's so many things to do here that I want to do in terms of looking at shows and work and so it's important for me in that way because I get to see so much good work here. Do you want to ta- you want to start with Agnes Martin? Okay, yeah. So, oh gosh, um, in a long time ago, um, in the early '80s, I saw Agnes speak in Albuquerque, and throughout the talk, and I'm I'm sure many many artists had this experience, but I felt that she was really speaking to me directly as an artist, and almost. Um, in the studio practice of quiet and just the distillation of that that I think she was so good at putting into words. So I, um, I, I couldn't stop thinking about her and, and I wanted to call her and she was in the phone book at that time. Mm-hmm. And she lived <laughs> Back outside. when there were phone books. Back when there were yeah. phone books and in Santa Fe when I lived, uh, in, and I lived there and she lived about 20 minutes outside of Santa Fe. And so I wanted to call her and, but I was really nervous about it. And so I wrote out a script on a piece of yellow legal pad and, and then about the week before I called her, I sent her a postcard of one of I was in a show of white on white works mm-hmm. at that time. And so I, I sent her the postcard because I thought it would kind of be, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be quite a cold call because here I was this random person calling her. Right. And so I called and I had it all written out. Hello, Ms. Martin. This is Susan York. And then, um, I thought she was going to say yes. And then I was going to go further on and explain how much I loved her work and what, you know, what, what, uh, and talk about the talk. Mm-hmm. And so I, I called and, and I said, hello, uh, nervously. Hello, Ms. Martin. This is Susan York. And she said, yes. And I can't decide. <laughs> and so I'm madly scanning my yellow legal pad for an answer that wasn't there. Uh, and it seemed like a half an hour passed, but it was probably only, a, a, you know, half a minute maybe, which is a long time on a phone call. But I said, I'm stammered. You can't decide. Mm-hmm. And she said, no. And her 
her voice was very unvarnished. I really like her work and like her Canadian roots, I think. Um, no, won't be able to decide until I see the work. Won't be able to know if you're ready to be internationally known or not until I see the work. So then I was especially stammering. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, bah, 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 um, you can come for tea. She said, you can come for tea. Yeah, that was the next sentence. I think it was, you can come for tea at three. And it was, you know, a few days later. Mm -hmm. And so that began a relationship with her where I would visit her for tea. And yeah. we would go out to dinner. And uh, at one point, uh, I, uh, we moved to um, a Zen center uh, out about an hour and 20 minutes from Santa Fe. And she came and visited me there. I had a studio and um, integrated my... Uh, the, pra the Zen practice with my studio practice. It was really nice. And, and so she came and visited me there and, um, was she into the Zen thing? Well, you know, she did. She had, uh, she read a, a Zen, Zen books, um, over and over mm -hmm. and she would just, it would, you know, they would disintegrate and she'd get another one. And, and so we, and it was, uh, it, Wang Po. Um, it, so, so we shared that and she was interested in that and she studied it like she did most things on her own terms. Mm -hmm. What was it, you know, that, that drew you to her at first? I didn't even think about it. I was just drawn to her work like mm -hmm. a magnet, yeah. like magnetic North. Just, oh, it just, uh, I still feel that way. Well, we've talked about that the retrospective mm -hmm. um it's you know to me that it doesn't have that anonymous surface which is maybe what she was speaking to when she talked about uh, not being related to or not being a minimalist mm -hmm. it's got that uh vitality of the handmade surface mm -hmm. And I think if you, you could, in terms of my own, my drawing in particular, you can see that with the sculpture, it appears that in some ways it's not a handmade surface. And yet, of course, it's polished mm -hmm. and polished and polished. By hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I use pneumatic tools, but, but it's, um, you know, the record of my hand, the, mm -hmm. the repetition, repeated hand is, is endemic. And the other thing about the graphite that I think in a way relate, may relate to Agnes's work is that it's, um, it's this surface that's not opaque. Like if you look at a painted wall, it, the surface stops at the surface mm -hmm. or your eye stops at the surface. And, but with the graphite, it's just a whole universe in there. You look in and it goes beyond like, look, I was used liken it to looking at a pond and, yeah. and you see the surface of the pond is so glassy. And then as you look in, there's this whole world beneath mm -hmm. it. And that's how it feels with, to me with the graphite. It, it's just like a living material. It's like the surface of the Amazon. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, it's carbon, so it's pure carbon. So it, it is in essence, the life, mm -hmm. life. So what about, what about Zen? Well, I've practiced it since I was 20. And so it's hard for me to separate out in a way it's impact. Mm -hmm. But I, we, my husband and I lived in Zen centers. He'd been practicing when I, I met him. And um, so is he kind of the way into it? Initially, yeah. He t he, we went to a retreat at the Lama Foundation for 10 days, which is kind of an old hippie thing in above Taos and um and this Japanese teacher came and it was uh even though we were in 
hippie land of Taos. It was this very, uh, we were in Japan for a while, you know, mm-hmm. walking in, in line with each other. And, um, and I really, uh, I loved the people initially. And then the practice really took me in the kind of, um, the order of it, the way I, there's a story, uh, um, about, Snakes, and if you put a snake in a piece of bamboo, mm-hmm. the snake can move around within that piece of bamboo and discover its shape. And that's how I feel about Zen practice. The, there, it, it, the, we practiced Rinzai Zen, which is maybe the most structured mm-hmm. Zen of all. Um, and um, it's that structure to live within it uh, really helped me understand the infinity that we all uh, live within. What is like? What does a daily practice look like? What, what do you do every day? You you sit quietly and breathe. How long? <laughs> it just depends. But you sit usually for about. Well, so in the retreats, you would um, you get up at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And a little before three, because I have the job of waking people up usually, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you have tea. Head, head Zen master. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> up at two fifty-five. It was like two thirty, I think. And then, and then you, I'd, I'd make the tea while everyone was getting up, and then go in the zendo and serve the tea, and then we chant. Mm-hmm. And you chant from this really low place, so it's like a being. Our Zen teacher always said it's like. Like speaking from the center of a mountain. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, the mass of a mountain and the inside of it, and then just like that. <laughs> and that's See, not now even that's as immortalized. Deep. Now we always have that. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> and that's not even as low or as resonant uh-huh. as when you're, you know. When you're in a room full of, of people yeah. and it's this collective activity. And when you've been meditating for a while. Mm-hmm. But, um, so that really, that quiet, uh, and it's kind of an act of quiet, I guess, cause mm-hmm. you're, you're paying attention to your breathing. And then at some point your body breathes, do you know how, cause I used to do this in the sixth grade. I don't know if you ever tried it where you're breathing and then you go, Oh, I notice I'm breathing. Oh, well, how do I notice my breathing without controlling my breathing? Mm-hmm. And I tried that forever and I, I couldn't quite figure it out. And that's what, for me, the, the meditation could do that. I could watch my breathing and not control it. Mm-hmm. And then in, within that, the rhythm of the breathing, um, sort of integrates with the rhythm of everything. And do you, I mean, do you feel like the way that you work is kind of sort of has a Zen quality? I mean, I know that you, you, you make a drawing every day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my daily practice and my mm-hmm. studio practice. I'll do it at home. I always do it at home, but, um, yeah, I do. And I feel like the breathing practice, uh, especially integrates with repetition. Mm-hmm. I love repetition. And so the, the mark making and the drawing where I'll put my densely drawn drawings have probably 50 layers of pencil marks yeah. on them to get the density. Mm-hmm. But I, that repetition, it just, uh, I, you know, it's like falling into the tides of the ocean or something. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's something that I kind of thought about for a while, like this, uh, and I was talking about it with, with Laszlo actually the last time I was in Marfa and it's almost like 
I see it as this very, very brave act to commit to a material the way you have and commit to a process. And it's actually, it's like a very Zen act, you know, like that, like feeling comfortable with repetition, feeling comfortable with this kind of meditative, you know, practice. And like, was that, was that a hard thing to do initially? No, it just, it, I think, you mean the Zen part or the, well I, well, I mean like, um, like, was it hard to, like when you, when you decided that graphite was going to be, you know, a, a path for you, was that kind of a scary thing to say, this is what I'm doing or has it, have you ever, have you ever felt confined by that? I'm starting to experiment with a few other materials right now. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no, I think, honestly, I think, I don't think about the Zen too much because it's just kind of part of life, but I think it does, it did have an impact in terms of not, you just follow, Mm -hmm. you don't in a way. And that's how my work is too, with my drawings, except for the daily drawings, my drawings and my sculpture, I figure it out ahead of time. So there's not thinking involved when making. So it's just repeated action and just that repeated action where you just fall into it. It's Mm -hmm. really quite, um, soothing. Yeah. So maybe we should go back before graphite and talk about porcelain. Yeah. So that's interesting. Cause I was talking about this the other day with a group that came to the, my show at the drawing center. Um, the, uh, I think the, uh, throwing came before I started studying Zen mm-hmm. formally. And then, I mean, only about three years before, but, um, Throwing, I think, is quite a remarkable thing. And throwing, I don't actually know uh, that. Oh, on the potter's wheel, uh, making pots on the potter's oh, yeah, wheel. Okay, yeah. So that's before the porcelain, right? Um, and that's a repeated action where you don't think. Mm-hmm. It's a repeated action where you just center, open, raise, mm-hmm. center, open, raise, center, open, raise, and. Um, th- it's that same freedom of no thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think no thinking maybe could be more of a benchmark of my, of my work. But again, except for the daily drawings are the outlier on that, on that. And sometimes the no thinking comes in on that, but with the daily drawings, I don't have everything planned ahead of time. I do exactly what I want in that moment. It's kind of like a, like a, how big, how big do you make them typically? They're all, um, I just cut a piece of paper in quarters, tear a piece of paper in quarters, and they're all 15 by 11 and a quarter. So it's kind of like a 15 by 11, just free space. You anything know? I want to do. Yeah. And how cool. often do any of us get to do anything we want to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you have to, you have to make your own space to do that. Yeah. And that's kind of what that is, I suppose. And the thing about being an artist, um, I think it's not such an easy life. And I think mm-hmm. that is the giant payoff. Yeah. Like that freedom. We get to do what we want. And with my, um, with the graphite sculptures and drawings, it is exactly what I want to do, mm-hmm. but it's more planned out ahead right. of time. So, um, you went to Amsterdam. Yeah. So I, exactly. I, well, I went to Cranbrook first. Right. Uh, so after having a studio practice, um, for, I don't even know how long it was at this point. It could have been 20 years. I decided I really wanted to go to grad school, that I was making this work and I was serious about it. 
Um, but I would wake up, you know, how when you wake up in the morning and you can't quite remember the dream you had the night before, mm-hmm. it was like that. I knew there was something more I wanted to do something bigger with the work or something different. And I couldn't get to it on my own. And so I decided I was going to go to a good grad school. And so I really looked around. I looked at Yale and I looked at a few schools and, but what I decided to do instead of looking at the school was to look at the people mm-hmm. who would be teaching me. Yeah. And eventually I settled on Cranbrook because of their, their structure, which is one artist in residence in every department. And then you can work with other artists in residence. But, but so I worked with Tony Hepburn mm-hmm. and it was a ceramics program. And the first day I got there, he told me I couldn't work in clay. Which is what you had been doing the whole time? Or? For, well, I'd been drawing and making prints and also, and, but my sculpture medium was clay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> like, seriously? And so I felt in a way like my arms had been cut off because what I had known and what I was, I had kind when you enter a grad program or any program, I think in the arts, you kind of have an idea of maybe what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And he put the, pulled the rug out from under me in a great way. And there's a whole thing about Zen mind, beginner's mind. And it was kind of like that. He made me a beginner, mm-hmm. even though I'd been doing it for 20 years. Right. And, um, ah, oh, it was really a gift. And yet it initially did not feel like a gift. It was sort so of What was terror. that first thing you did? Like what was, well, I didn't, I was just like, oh. and so he said, well, get some images that you like and just project them and draw those and see what what happens. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. I was drawing sculpture and square then, one, square one, yeah. square one. And then, and then, um, what I, before I had come, I was doing these geometric f- sculptures out of, out of clay. And so I took those shapes and enlarged them and then sieved them on the floor. Mm-hmm. So I take pigments and silica, mainly ceramic pigments, iron, and sieve them on the floor in big geometric shapes. And, and I, I really loved it. And one of the things I really loved about it was that when I was done, I could, I didn't have to deal with storage. I could just sweep it and put it in a garbage bag. And so it's like almost like loose pigment on the floor, loose pigment on the floor in geometric shapes. How long would you leave it there before you decided it was ready for the, well, the it, sweep? it was in the crit room. So uh-huh. I only had a certain amount of time. And then I initially started with sweeping compound, which you may not remember, but it was oiled sawdust. Mm-hmm. It's cool material. I don't know if they make it anymore, but, um, it's got oh. that very distinct smell to it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, know, exactly. Yeah, and it's about. hairy. It's kind of hairy and red. And I feel like they use it in sort of like schools and stuff they like do, that. They do, exactly. Yeah, like, so, in, like institutional cleaning. So there were some there. Yeah. So I made, and then I, so I could make a thick uh, shape of it in mm-hmm. sweeping compound. And, um, and that was what the start, that was the start of it, that, mm-hmm. and then that then morphed into these big shapes in the rooms. And then when I went back at... Christmas, I think it was, I met with Agnes and I told her, I was so exhilarated. I said, and I, I sweep them up in the trash bag and I don't have to deal with storage. It's <laughs> just remarkable. It's, uh-huh. it's the best thing. And she, she, there's a silence and she's looking at me kind of with a disgusted look on her face. And, and she says, how are you ever going to establish your market? Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> If you're throwing the work away, she wasn't, she wasn't down for the impermanence. She wasn't buying it. (laughs) That's funny. That's amazing. Um, I mean, I think that sounds like such a, 
I mean, did you, like, in hindsight, did you, do you still like the clay work you were doing before? Yeah, yeah, I do. And then, well, when I went to, so then I went to the Netherlands after I had, I was, um, I had applied for a Fulbright and, and didn't do the Fulbright, but went, just went for three months mm-hmm. to this European Ceramic Work Center. And it was there that I was able to finally see Rietveld's work. Gary Rietveld. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, cause that was why I wanted to go there in the first place. Cause I'd seen like a little tiny picture of his red blue chair in my dance and art history book and mm-hmm. knew he was one of my people along right. with Malevich. And, um, I, um, so I got to actually see his work and I would go into the Stadelik or the Central Museum and in the storage rooms and they would uncover the work. And as long as I didn't touch it, I, I could do anything. That's cool. So you, you had access oh to all that. Oh my God. Anybody can have access to it. I think really? I just asked. Still today? Pretty sure. That's amazing. You just make appointments. Yeah. I mean, someone will maybe contradict that, but. Um, but so I measured them. I measured the red, I measured a a lot of chairs that he made. And it's interesting what you said about, um, the graphite work that it looks like I just kind of cut it and, and played around with that Mm -hmm. in terms of shape. That's really what he did. You measure those chairs and there are a lot of them are different sizes because you think, I'm sure the later production models weren't, but, but they were, he was just an artist putting together shapes. Yeah. They're all handmade basically. Right. Yeah. And they're all different measurements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I got interested in, so I took the chair, the Rietveld chair and the red blue chair. Well, one of the, it wasn't red and blue. It was gray and black, but it was an exquisite chair and it had three one centimeter holes in the back and I measured it and then went back to the work center and calculated for shrinkage Mm -hmm. and then made one out of Delft porcelain to scale one-to-one scale. And then I, there I got it made. And then the guys there, well, how are you going to, were asking me, how are you going to put it together? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not putting it together. What I'm really interested in is that I think that Rietveld was looking at Van Dosberg and those other, and Mondrian and the other dish style artists. And like planes. Yeah. Yeah. Taking their shapes initially. I don't know this for a fact, but I think this is true. And put it, put them together into Mm -hmm. chairs and furniture and buildings. And so I laid them out. I took his chair apart and laid it out as a schematic on the floor. Um, And, and the, the chair parts were, were extruded porcelain mm-hmm. so you were doing a lot of these floor pieces then yeah i well what was so cool about the floor pieces is i didn't have to deal with gravity uh-huh. i worked with gravity right yeah i mean i like i like the idea of um i mean it, it's true and it, thinking about that chair and it's something that i see in a lot of your work it's and when when i came to the to the drawing center show i mean it's what you talked about with the drawings it's it's at what point at what point uh, does something that's flat become three-dimensional, you know? And, and it, almost like when you lay something out on the floor, when you deconstruct a chair like that, you're sort of making a, a case for its for both its two-dimensional characteristics and its three-dimensional character, characteristics kind of having, you know, like a common, sort of a common essence to them, you know? Exactly. And there's a story which I now I don't know if it's true because a curator at the Stadelic told me this. And then at, and then in the end, I couldn't confirm it anywhere, but that Rietveld would take a piece of paper for uh, often. He would look at a piece of paper and he would bend it up and down. Mm-hmm. And the curator said, I don't really know what he was doing there, but that's what that's what he was doing. And 
I think that if this story is true anyway, that what he was doing was trying to understand at what moment does this flat piece of paper become three dimensional? Mm-hmm. Not from a mathematical point, because a mathema- mathematician could argue that a piece of paper is three-dimensional. Like always three-dimensional. Always yeah. and forever. But at what point do you start perceiving it as an object rather than a flat thing? Yeah, that's yeah. well said. Yeah, exactly. So you can see just taking, holding a flat piece of paper and lifting it, bending it up on one side. Mm-hmm. At what moment in that bend does it appear to be a three-dimensional object? And so... I became really kind of obsessed with that question. And so I started by pouring these paper-thin porcelain shards, Mm -hmm. translucent porcelain shards. And I decided to make them all the same shape so that then I could stack and then I could know what Mm -hmm. is the answer for me to that question. How many porcelain stacks does it take to make a three-dimensional object. And I, so don't, I don't want to ask how many broke in the, pro- <laughs> in the process of stacking. <laughs> <laughs> but so I started by making, I decided I would make my height, uh-huh. which I calculated erroneously to be a thousand shards. Wow. And I didn't really calculate for warping because you can't really calculate for that ahead of time. But, um, but that became a body of work then that I did for quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, which you've probably seen it, and the slabs. I would make the, I would make a steel, I would have a piece of steel bent and put the um, porcelain vertical. Sometimes it would be horizontal. Sometimes they'd be on aluminum uh, things or wooden. And at one point I was asked uh, to prep, prep, participate in the, the what's called the Dutch Souvenir Project. It was a design project out of the, work center in Holland. And, um, I made some Rietveld, uh, chair parts mm-hmm. that were a quarter scale, I think, and then put some porcelain pieces on those. So it, it was, it was a good project. And I still have the shards, as you know, since you've been in my studio mm-hmm. and I haven't gotten rid of them yet. So who knows? It's curious to me how you moved from porcelain to graphite then, because the porcelain is almost the opposite material. I mean, I mean, not in every sense, but you know, the, the graphite are these kind of solid, sort of strong, organic shapes. And the porcelain is this kind of like delicate, it almost feels, you know, like, like fragile, sort of precarious. Um, like what was that first movement? I, I was really interested, I'm really interested in elemental materials, Mm -hmm. and I see the porcelain as elemental, uh, but it's not, I would say it's not as elemental as graphite, Mm -hmm. but so I started by, when I was at Cranbrook, I was making these spheres that were aspherical spheres, and um, I was making them in clay, and didn't quite make sense, because the one thing that I learned at Cranbrook from my from Tony Hepburn who was my teacher when he told me I couldn't work in clay anymore was that my idea had to relate to the material in a way that was different than what I had been doing I couldn't just work in the material because I liked it yeah you had to have a reason why it had to be that material for this purpose exactly yeah. which is more in line with current thinking in art as yeah I mean I think of that as like a fundamental aspect of of really most things I mean you know of design as well as art. I mean, in your in the way you live your life, I think that is a fundamental element, you know? I do too. Yeah. Although at that time, all I could think of was 
clay was my material and that's yes. what I wanted to work on. You were on. a clay artist, <laughs> so you did things in clay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I figured out ways to make everything I wanted to make in clay. Right. Um, so the... Um, I really didn't work much in clay at Cranbrook. I, I mostly worked in other sculptural materials and drawing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the so the graphite because I was drawing, um, I started covering uh, different forms that I made, like these spheres in graphite. Mm-hmm. And I loved the infinity of of it. And that the, surface. Yeah, and the, but it bugged me that it was just surface. <laughs> And so I, when I went to Holland, I did a bunch of work and figured out uh, ways to make solid mm-hmm. uh, forms in graphite. And I kind of haven't looked back. How, how, like, what was that? What was that, that, that process? I mean, how do you go about making a solid plinth of graphite? I mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen your do these, these room sized plinths of graphite. And I think, where did this possibly come from this thing? Well, it's a variety of things. So some, some of them I make and it's a heated process that heats up actually in the kiln mm-hmm. in these uh, heat bearing molds that are made with fire clay and plaster. It's a ceramic process, mm-hmm. right? It's not as hot as ceramics. And then I have someone else who makes some of the larger pieces. So it's kind of a variety of, of sources. Right. But the, um, oh, the graphite, it's just so, um, it's such a great material. It's an amazing material. Yeah. Isn't it right? And it also reminds me what you said about the surface quality. It reminds me, uh, of the the plastic tools you use in your studio, which I tell, I tell everyone about this because I think it's the most amazing thing in the world is that you have all these, these plastic bottles and spray bottles and brushes and they're all look from the accumulation of dust and from the rubbing and just from the constant use, they look as if they're made of just solid graphite. They look like sculptures, you know, I mean, they're, I think they're amazing. And Almost some of them look like a Jasper John sculpture, don't they? Yeah, they kind of, they do. Yeah, exactly. Like they should be embedded in some sort of thick paste and <laughs> and left forever. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should talk about maybe we should talk about the the show at the drawing center. That was a long time in coming. Um, when did this first uh, come up? Well, actually, Brett Lippman came and saw a show that I did at the Lannan Foundation in Santa mm-hmm. Fe uh, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And it had a 14-foot hanging graphite column in it that hung. That's going to be rehung uh, at the museum in Santa Fe uh, starting in November, actually. Is that the one that's in your, in your book? That's the column in my book. Yeah, yes, I love that piece. Thank it's you. Amazing. It just hovers off the ground. It's like yeah, up. it's about an inch and a half off the ground, yeah. and uh, that 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 was a key part. I um, my husband helps me with a lot of the fabrication, and when I told him that I wanted to do that, he's like, "Couldn't it just sit on the ground? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it really? Yeah. Have, it's does it, does it really have to float? How does it float? I mean, what, yeah. it has a whole internal structure that hangs it from the ceiling, mm-hmm. basically, and then. Um, because that point of tension between the bottom of the column and the floor is crucial. Yeah, I know. I, I can't imagine that piece without it. Right? Mm-hmm. It'd just be sitting there. Yeah. And and I had, there was a collaborative project at Cranbrook where they made us all collaborate with each other through different departments, all these artists who want to be alone in their studio. Yeah. And, and um, I had designed this. It was, um, you know, how when you do a group project, there's 
often one lead kind of person. And that was, I had really wanted to do a floating column and then I found brick. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we, it was a brick floating brick column. And, um, so in a way that was the first floating column, although we didn't quite calculate right for the distance. It looked like it was sitting on the ground, except if somebody would push against it, it would would kind of sway. sway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not supposed to touch the art. So (laughs) yeah, really. (laughs) It's actually, I mean, it's a bit of a sidebar, but you know, Sarah was actually, um, like talking to me about this, like what has that relationship been like with your, with your husband, with, with working on you know, on the work in that way. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, we, it's sort of an afterthought in a sense, like how, how these things, you know, sit on the wall, how they, how they work mechanically and physically yeah. like behind the scenes, but it's actually a really crucial part of crucial. Of and work. the fact that the work looks as good on the back as it does on the front, absolutely. Yeah. That they hang seamlessly wherever they are. I know. I mean, it's, it's part of, uh, we should talk about Dennis too, but it's, yeah. it's part of what makes, uh, 2d gallery and marfa so amazing is the way that works hung and the way it just is you'd almost like wouldn't even notice it you know if you if you're if you're walking through quickly how it how it's just it's beautifully in these in these kind of out of the way corners of the gallery these um and they sit so perfectly on the wall so what has that been like like working with your husband when did that start Oh, that's a good question too um he so he so my husband chris worth has a background in cabinet making mm-hmm. and software engineering. So it's, it's kind of for nowadays, it's just the absolute perfect combination. It's two very different, but very similar kind of activities, you know? Yeah. And he considers himself a fabricator. Right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't consider himself an artist, although he certainly could be. And he's helped design a lot of the mounts and, uh, has figured out technical parts. He, we have several CNC machines that mm-hmm. he's gotten at auctions and then he's ended up putting motors on them and writing the program. So they were he's a tinkerer. Yeah. He's like a mad inventor uh-huh. and it, it's, it's really been good actually. I mean, you know, it has its moments, um, yeah, but, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's been really good because at this point he, and we've been together a really long time. So he, he, we have a, a way to communicate what, mm-hmm. what's needed. That's beyond words. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's such an important, like part of relationship, you know I mean? That seems like such a perfect symbiosis to me, you know, it's like actually very, it's very sweet. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there is a, there's a sweetness about it. And there's, um, it's, I mean, in terms of the graphite work, it's, he's really obsessive too. Mm-hmm. So it works really well and he has a good eye and it, it's just, it, it, it works well. I'm, you know, quite grateful. Well, I think it's so important. I mean, you know, it's, it, again, I, I find it funny to talk about with you cause I, cause when I see your work, I don't think fabricator, you know what I mean? Like I don't. I don't see it as something that ever seems like it was fabricated. It has this, you know, like we talked about this kind of handmade quality to it. But that being said, like, you know, husband or not, that relationship to to a, a fabricator or a person who makes things happen, I think is so important and so difficult to come by. You know what I mean? Like, like I think, I don't know, I maybe you've had this experience of, of going to someone who you know, has like an industrial practice or, you know, as a, an industrial fabricator or something like that and bringing them a, a, an artistic concept. 
And like, sometimes it's like, what are you like? No, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to do that for you. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm sure the people who you work with in terms of, you know, sourcing these, this graphite, I mean, it must be a, it must be a, like a commercial venture, right? Yeah. Some of it is. And then some of it's just a guy who, who, who does it, you know, it's <laughs> like, it just depends on what I need. Right. <laughs> but I think that, I think that's a funny you know, that's a funny thing. Like I've been reading this, I've been reading this, um, you know, this, uh, Robert Irwin biography and he talks about seeing is forgetting. Exactly. Yeah. Which is amazing. And, um, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people, you know, Robert Irwin or, or rather Wexler talks about, you know, when the discs are being fabricated and, and visiting all these like garages and, you know, outside of Los Angeles, like trying to find someone who will just you know, help make these things come into existence. And it's a hard thing to, you know, to justify oh to someone God. or explain to someone. And, but it's so beautiful when it comes together. Like, you know, uh, Wexler says that those, those discs were made in, you know, this like small garage outside of Los Angeles, um, from this like family who makes signs, like, you know, like, uh, uh, store signs for, for businesses. So it's funny to think about finding these people who, who get excited about a project or are as invested in, in the work as you are, you know? And it seems like that's kind of what you've always had, which is, you know, not to be overlooked. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And the, we were talking about the drawing center project a little while ago. Um, that project, as I said, Brett Littman came to my show at LAN and, and then in 2008, and we've been meeting ever since. I had different ideas for larger pieces, pieces in different sites. And then when the drawing center got remodeled, um, they left the foundation. The foundation of the building is uh, granite piers that mm-hmm. brick column, columns rest on to hold the building up. And they left some of that exposed. They dug down an extra two feet and it revealed the, the granite. And they left it exposed in the hallway. And I've always been just transfixed by those stones. Mm-hmm. And then, but I'll be talking to people about them and they'll, who have been in that very place in the basement of the drawing center many times and haven't even noticed them. Yeah. So I, I really, I wanted to magnify their presence in mm-hmm. a, in a way that where people would notice them. And so that, that's how that project came about. I actually, and that this was another fabrication conundrum um getting the uh we tried scanning the foundation because i wanted to make the i wanted to in essence replicate initially i wanted to just replicate the the foundation and then have it in graphite Mm -hmm. in that in the in the building in that site and then um what i ended up doing was as you actually very uh succinctly (laughs) <laughs> wrote <laughs> was take it begin with replicating the first one and then have them gradually become more geometric as you mm-hmm. got to the end of the hallway and to, in order to do that I couldn't just cast them mm-hmm. I needed to do some kind of digital um, process and so eventually finally found the the best way to do it with high resolution scans mm-hmm. and then um having a robot basically mill is a cnc well it was a it's a computerized um form related to a cnc but the robot is actually um uh, making the the cuts mm-hmm. with a mill with a tool 
Uh, And the computer's telling the robot how to make the cuts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about it as being beautifully site-specific. You know, like, this, it can't exist anywhere else, and... And I've also, I've noticed those, those pieces of foundation every time I'm there and cause they're, they're so odd. And we were talking about when, you know, when I was in the show, how I always, I always found that those bits of foundation left exposed were odd because, you know, after the drawing center renovation, it kind of was like this spiffy, you know, it was like a really <laughs> spiffy place. And I was talking about those floated walls and how, you know, how much attention is paid in like Chelsea and all these fancy galleries to all these, you know these kind of beautifully hovering walls and the walls hover in the hallway, but then they're sort of like interrupted by these, you know, these kind of just rocks on the ground. And, um, I always thought it was like a peculiar, but you know, I'm, I'm grateful that they're left there for your work, but I always thought it was kind of a peculiar detail. Um, but I think, I think that site specific quality is something, something really special about that installation, you know? Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a peculiar detail that makes a building <laughs> for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this was a big leap in a certain sense because the aesthetic of those stones, as much as I was transfixed by them, aesthetically they're not exactly geometric or reductive or um, minimal. They are organic forms. And super intricate organic forms. Super intricate, yeah. Hence the high-resolution scanning. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and um, when I, I made drawings of these forms and cited them at the bottom of the paper just the way the rocks are cited in the building, and um, when I finished the first drawing, I stepped back and I went, you did this? It, really? <laughs> Uh, because they look like mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I'm not a mountain range kind of artist. <laughs> <laughs> I like to walk on them, but not to draw them. So it's, it's a very interesting thing when the site determines what you, what you make. Mm-hmm. And, and it's another facet of that whole, uh, aspect of not thinking when you're making Right. That you're, you're just letting the site guide you. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's, it's shocking to me sometimes when I look at that work and think it's mine, because mm-hmm. even though it's got my mark on it, obviously it, they're so organic that it's, uh, it still startles me. Can we, I'm actually, I'm happy we didn't move on yet. Cause I, cause there are things about the drawings I wanted to talk about. Um, what about that sort of blur? Oh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so, this beautiful, I mean, just for the sake of clarity, there's this beautiful, it's almost like a glow, like a dust, I mean, or, or blur, as I said, like, uh, like a halo around these drawings of the, I guess it's the, I guess it's the dust of the graphite that is settling on the paper, but. Yeah, it's me smudging it, actually. So you've actually, you've yeah. actually gone. So, so what's the, um, what's the reasoning there? Um. When they're just without, before I finish, before they're, once they're drawn and then I haven't smudged it, they're, to me, it merges the form with the paper. Mm-hmm. They're just sitting on top and they're more uh, an, uh, of an object. So I, I suppose in a certain way, 
it's installed on the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, it's merged with the paper in, in a way when it's smudged that it is not be, before the smudging. Mm-hmm. Did you and did you originally want to install the graphite pieces at the drawing center on the floor? Yes, I did. Uh, they just belong on the floor uh, because that's where they came from, and, and because the forms came from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about that in the past few days because the, as you install, it changes everything, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I wanted to have them on the floor, and I wanted them to be, sort of integrate with the with the space in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would integrate more seamlessly, but it's an area that's not, uh, supervised that, that the basement area and, um, Dan Gillespie, who's the chief, uh, preparator there it said that kids come and they'll jump on the stones and, <laughs> you know, they're not going to see my stones as any different from the granite stones uh-huh. and they would crack. And so as a matter of practicality in that particular site, mm-hmm. I needed to bring them up. And I think as I've looked at them over the past week, I think it, it's an interesting thing what happens. Um, I, even though the, it's, it is completely site specific and they're in the site where they were born right. from or born of and um there but I've displaced them within their own site by placing the graphite pieces up on the walls mm-hmm. almost as if they've levitated above the their themselves mm-hmm. you know it's funny with the um with the idea that the kids would kind of would come scuff the work up you know like <laughs> Cause I've seen, I've seen kids like jump on those stones before, you know? Oh, and, you have. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. And, um, but it, but it's actually another reason I, I thought that the site specificity of this work was so special because it's this part of that institution that is so kind of, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's like a, it's a corridor, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not technically an exhibition space, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, and that's the reason the foundation's left. It's kind of like a structural sort of necessary part of the building. And in the end, I'm glad to be there because, well, because of the site specificity of it, Mm -hmm. that, that that's where the foundation is. And I loved what you said about that. This sort of, it's, a modest space where the bathrooms are. Yeah. So that's yeah. my hope is that everyone will have to come, come to the bathroom and they'll yeah. see it. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to see it no matter what. Yeah. But I mean, not to bring up Robert Irwin again, it's just, you know, he's been on my mind. Uh, um, he's he's been always on my, on mind, my mind so much. Yeah. I mean, uh, I see a lot of parallels between what the both of you do in thinking about, um, really in thinking about, uh, perceptions that you, that you feel more than see. You know what I mean? I think, I think it's almost like I said it earlier, uh, when you look at these works, sometimes it's, you, you can feel some sort of, um, you can feel that they're, that they're sort of skewed one way, or you can feel that they're not quite a perfect form. You can feel that they have like a, a handmade quality to them, but you can't necessarily see it. You know, it's this very, it's this space in between, but you know, thinking about Robert Irwin again, it's like, you know, I've been reading this book and the first scrim piece, you know, the first one was installed at this like rando room in MoMA, you know, this, this, Oh yeah. I remember that. This room that, that no one, no one wanted to be in this, this room with a storage closet, like, you know, abutting it. And, um, 
And it's almost like when you when you work with those spaces, you're granted kind of a freedom, you know, because you don't have to do a you don't have to fill up an exhibition space in the way that everyone expects you to. You know, that's you really can true. William. That's work really with something true, yeah. else. And that's what I see that you did, which is amazing. Yeah, I, ah, I, it's been, it's interesting that you bring up Erwin at this juncture because um, Sight Determined is, I think he coined that phrase Mm -hmm. when he delineated all those various aspects of installation and sight. But, um, yeah, and that piece in Marfa. It's amazing, right? At age 88. Yeah. I mean, how many people are at the top of their game at age 88? I know. I, I don't know how long that, that piece has been sort of in conception. I don't know how long. I, I know a long time. I know that the plans have been laid out for forever, and uh, but all, you know, as, as is the case with him, like there's always things that change once you just are there and you're starting to install it. And um, I mean, was, was Robert Irwin an important artist to you? No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yes, Robert Irwin, the ineffability mm-hmm. of what he does and the visceral response that that work evokes. Mm-hmm. That visceral response is really important to me. We had at the drawing center the other day, I was there with Frank Del Deo, who, um, with whom I work with him and Ben Barzun in a gallery, in Del Deo and Barzun here. And a collector came up well, a person came up from the basement, and I could tell that he had had some kind of... He was affected by the work, the way you can tell uh, with uh, when, it, when you see a visceral response in someone. Right. And he was almost a little bit speechless. He didn't expect it, I don't think. And uh, it turned out he's from Zurich and had never seen the work before, and... and um, was, you know, I think he wanted some work, but, but the main thing for me was how profoundly affected by the work he Mm -hmm. was. And that, I feel really lucky that way in terms of my gallerists and collectors that that has to be there because the work on the surface is so, um, plain in a certain way Mm -hmm. that there has to be a deeper understanding to want to show that work or to want to have it. And so I have this amazing, amazing group of collectors that are, you know, I mean, the majority of them are my friends and we Mm -hmm. meet here and go to galleries and, you know, so there's, it's like a, I think because it's so dis, the work is so distilled that it's a, a tri- the tribe of distillation mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in all ways. And, and I just, I'm really grateful. And I guess that takes us to Dennis, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Dennis started his gallery in Marfa maybe 14 years ago. Yeah, I think it's about right. Yeah. yeah. And he lives there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he lives in the packing room, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and he could live in the house behind it, but he doesn't. He's so dedicated that he lives and breathes it 24-7, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So he's created this environment for all of us. And for the artists, it's especially special because he he spends... It's very quiet in Marfa most of the time, mm-hmm. and so he spends that time citing the work. Yeah, I mean, that gallery is hung 
I mean, it's, it's, it's hung so, and he changes it all the time, you know, so it's not even like it's this, you know, precious thing that can't ever change, but every time I go in there, the, the way it's hung is so, like, considered, and it, it's like a fantasy group show in there at all times. And he you never know? has, he had one show, and it was my work when he first opened, mm-hmm. and he just couldn't stand the hoopla, I think, yeah. uh, surrounded by a show, so he just doesn't do shows anymore. Yeah. But. But each one is a show. I mean, it's like a museum, you know. I mean, I I always tell people to go there because if you're in Marfa and you're having um, if you're having these experiences with with Judd or Flavin or you know Ronnie Horn or um, all the amazing artists that you can see at at you know museums there um, or institutions there, I think you could go to two D and have a very similar kind of experience. You know, I mean, absolutely. Because you can't see that work anywhere else. I mean, really, like, there's no other. There's not too many programs that would have that that kind of work so, and be so dedicated to it, you know, um, and so faithful to it. So I think that experiencing the way he hangs that is just like going to Chinati or Judd, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true, and I guess I, and uh, just in terms of that, I. F- I think that my work self-selects mm-hmm. those, or peop, the gallerists self-select through the work, because I do feel like Del Deon Barzin in, in New York and um, uh, Gallery Bender in Munich and um, Dr. Julius in Berlin and Anna Wenger in Zurich, the my galleries, all have programs that relate. Now, no one. Well, I think uh, Matthias in in Berlin does live part of the time in his space, mm-hmm. but that it's that living part. Yeah, that like the intimacy with their own work, you know. And it becomes a seamless mm-hmm. experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, how did you first meet Dennis? Dennis had seen my work at a gallery in Santa Fe, and he just called me, and he mm-hmm. said, "I went to Marfa." I think he went to Marfa on a weekend and then and bought a house. He went down for the weekend and then decided that was it. He bought a house, <laughs> sold his house. Impulse buy. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> moved down and hasn't ever looked back and rarely comes goes anywhere else. Yeah. He's never been to New York, mm-hmm. as we know, even yeah. though we'd all like him to come. Um, and he just called me and said, I'm starting a gallery initially, it was, I think, with seven people, and would you consider being a part of it? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that I would, it. that was it. And he, he, it's, it, it's been really good. Had you been to Marfa at that point? No. So he was representing your work before you'd even been to. Yeah. I mean, of course I knew about it, but I'd never been there. So I went, what was your experience going there for the first time? Well, it, in a certain way, it felt like home, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little small for like long-term living. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, if Santa Fe is too big, you know. <laughs> and you now have a long relationship with Marfa too, from when the time you were a little boy. Basically. Yeah, I mean, when I that's that's why I'm always so interested when I you know hear these these stories of people meeting Dennis. Uh, it's like my little subplot, but because um, I met him when I was such a young kid, you know, and um, and he really has had like a pretty big effect on my life, you know. I think um, I think. Uh, at, when you're really young, um, you're really just open to ideas and you're really, you're really, you know, you're really, um, impressionable. And I just, I always remembered that space, you know, I, I wow. can think about it so clearly. And so, uh, 
I mean, I think it, it just had a big effect on me in, in, in the way I thought about art for a long time and still do, you know? So, you know, and, and to the extent that our relationship has been active or dormant, you know, you know, over my life has kind of always been irrelevant to me. It's like always just been something <laughs> I've kept with me. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so that's why I've always been so um, kind of interested in people's stories with him. But, Can I ask you, how has it changed as you've grown your experience with it because it's so much about scale and 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 basically you mean as being like a like a like a little yeah, person or yeah <laughs> looking up the scale of your body has changed dramatically that's funny um that's funny i mean you know i i've never thought about it like that i've always thought about it you know like more abstractly but i think there is like definitely a physical since I mean, I remember being um, like the first time I walked in. This isn't a two D story, but necessarily. But the first time I walked in the um, the Judd site with the with the hundred works in aluminum, mm-hmm. I was as tall as the aluminum. That's awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I would, and everyone always takes now. Everyone takes these pictures of you know they squat down and they take that that picture of them reflected in the aluminum. I've taken that picture. But your eye level, you were eye level. I was that. eye level, so I couldn't even. I remember I it was like an epiphany to me that they had tops, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I, I was a kid, you know, I was a really little kid. So I would walk and it was just like this funhouse mirror game, you know, like you see your reflection everywhere and each one had kind of a different quality of reflection. Um, and some you could see in, but most, you know, most are, are, um, open from the top. So I think that there's just like a very, I think when you're a kid, like perceptual art, you know, art that's all about the senses is almost like, you know, supercharged, you know, cause you're not thinking about it necessarily intellectually. You're not thinking about it. Um, you're not contextualizing it. You know, you're really, you're really experiencing it in like a very kind of joyful way. You know, like children have this very, it's why people always have to hold their kids back in the Robert Irwin because they just want to, <laughs> they just want to run straight into those scrims because it's like the most. It's I want to do that, you know. It's it's absolutely how you want to engage that work. Um, so I think I think as a young person, I felt that kind of joy dealing with that, and I'm, I'm sure the same was true in in two D. You know, really... I remember that uh, Dennis had these limited edition skateboards, and I don't know if he's told you this story, but he had these like limited edition skateboards that I'm sure were very important pieces of art and he let me ride around on them. And that's like the kind of guy he was, you know? So, <laughs> so that, that was also, you know, I was like, I was, I was, you know, wholeheartedly joyful in those days. So yeah, that was nice. That's really, have you heard that story about the Aaron was doing an installation? I think it was at MoMA and all he was getting his cadre of big collectors coming in, but he felt like the, the first person who really got what he was doing was a kid who got off the elevator who was, I think about 10. I think there's like a leveling quality to that work. You know what I mean? You don't have to be, you don't have to have gone to this school. You don't have to have read this book. You know, there it's, there's a very, um, there's just a very direct way to get it. And it's all about who you are as a per, you know, it's, it's really kind of, it puts the, it puts the pressure back on you. Cause it's really just like, are you open to these experiences? You know, are you open to having, having like a perceptual experience, you know, like, are your eyes really open? Yeah. I was going to say it would takes courage, but actually it is, it takes more, more, 
it it takes openness. Yeah. You can't take it too seriously, you know? Yeah, you have to just... I always... I would take... uh, Because I taught for a long time, and I would take students to Marfa every year in my installation class, and I would try to get... Because I think that the experience uh, when you're in the aluminum... uh, In the artillery sheds of the aluminum boxes at at Chinati, or when you're looking at most many Judd works, um, Terrell... Um, Flavin, but especially Irwin, um, there's a visceral experience that happens. And I was trying to get them to notice that because I think that it's a, it's a very interesting thing because it's that whole experience of thinking and we would call it in Zen non-thinking where, um, they become, in a way, maybe they crash together, and in another way, they are in balance, where your brain is equal to the rest of your body instead of governing it. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's what I was addressing in that when I was in the sixth grade, trying to not control my breathing yeah. but to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That same experience, and and if you can be aware of it, this is what I what I was working on with my guys, with my students. If you can be aware of that visceral experience with your brain and your body in equanimity, mm-hmm. um, you get a lot from it. You, there's a there's something that happens that's um, uh, beyond in a way beyond the experience itself and completely within the experience itself. Do you, um, do you miss being a teacher? I don't. I, I think it was time for me to just be in the studio, but I still, you know, like I'm still in text relationships with a lot of students, helping them get internships and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, one of my, uh, classmates from Cranbrook brought her class to the drawing center the other day. That's cool. And I feel really, really, really committed to education and passing it on. I think we all have a responsibility to give back. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was my main drive with teaching. And so now with the drawing center, I've made the invitation to people I know who teach or affiliated with institutions that I'd love to meet their students there. Yeah, to go and talk. Yeah. Yeah. And just talk to them about, about the work. What were your, um, like how, like what was your, what was your kind of style as a teacher? Like what was, do you have like a, like what was the assignment you gave everyone? You know, what do you say on the first day? What's your first, what's your first day (laughs) speech? I'm trying to imagine what it'd be like to to be in a class with you. Well, according to my students, I was a bit of a hard ass Uh (laughs) (laughs) because I wanted them you know, to, to make some discoveries. And sometimes that means pushing people off cliffs. Well, it's, it's exactly what your teacher did with you, you know, saying no more clay, exactly. you know, exactly. Yeah. And I think actually he, he and my Zen teacher were models for that. Just mm-hmm. like, okay, bam, mm-hmm. you're off the cliff. Okay. How's it? How is it? Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I think the, the other part of that is, um, Tony Hepburn would say, don't rush to conclusion too much in terms of your ideas. Take mm-hmm. your time. And it, what I noticed in that is it's very uncomfortable. 
to not know what you're doing, to mm-hmm. be in that. And what initially is kind of thrilling that anything is possible is then intimidating because you want to know, you want to know, you want to have, have your feet on the ground and know. And, um, not knowing in that, not knowing. So I would work on that to stay in not knowing for as long as I possibly could before I die. And, um, it, it's really, uh, juicy <laughs> and scary and terrifying at the same time. Well, like with the drawing center project, I was in not knowing for uh, quite a long time, mm-hmm. longer than I really wanted to be. But sometimes it's like trying to find your shape in the dark and right. you just have to like feel it you know, feel it. Yeah. And then eventually you get to it. Yeah. But it's, it's not so easy. Right. Well, I think that's a nice place to leave it. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. God, it's thank great you, talking William. with you. It was, it was really terrific. It was awesome to talk to you. And, and, and I've loved getting to know you and getting to know Sarah over these last few years since you vis- guys visited my studio. Was it only last summer? The, well, yeah, it was last summer. Feels like longer, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah. That's what's so good about it. That's I feel a good like thing. We'll be friends forever. Uh, <laughs> thank you for saying that. I feel the same way. I seriously do. All right. Well, we'll have uh, till next time, I suppose. All right. Thank you. That was it. That was my conversation with Susan. As we talked about, her long-term installation foundation is going to be at the Drawing Center through October of 2018. I encourage everyone to go see it. First and foremost, thank you to Susan York for talking with me. Thank you to Sarah Levine, my partner and producer, to Exhibitions 2D, to The Drawing Center, and to Jack and Eliza for providing our music. You can download their album, Gentle Warnings, on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.